Family businesses can be difficult and complex at the best of times, and nobody knows this better than my next guest, Sean Johal. Sean is the co-founder of Dolls Lighting, an LED lighting business which was born from the ashes of a collapsed, listed entity that he worked in and his father-in-law had built. Sean's story twists and turns into a celebrated success that led him to write his new book, The Happy Leader. My name is Nick Harrell-Ambus and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Okay, Sean, um, welcome to the show. It's not over. We are here to talk about, uh, in this one, possibly two near-death business experiences. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm super excited and everything's uh, fantastic. Oh, that's great. Your, your voice is so crisp and full. It makes for easy listening. So let's dive right in and give me some context. What, what business are we talking about? What does it do? How does it make money? And where are you positioned in this business? Absolutely, yeah. So we're going to talk about the LED lighting business. I have a few different businesses. One's a coaching practice, but today we're going to talk specifically about the LED lighting business. Um, you know, we're based out of North America, based out of Montreal, Canada. Have about 50 employees. Have offices out of Florida as well. We basically make LED lighting for the residential market, selling to you know companies like Home Depot and a lot of big lighting showrooms and distributors. Awesome, and um, you can talk as comfortably as you want about like revenue and stuff but how big is the business in terms of turnover like what can you share with us yeah absolutely so it's a mid eight figure business um that we basically grew from the the ground up uh we came out of a, a family bankruptcy so it was a, it was an interesting story which we'll get into the interesting tidbit about our business I th- i'll give you two pieces of information which are quite unique for us number one is that we've never had a month in the red uh, which is, I think, rare for most businesses. Uh, so that's one interesting element. And number two, that we changed, I calculate, 87% of the team over five years. Wow. That's crazy. So how old is the business now? Now we're going on year 12. Wow. Okay, great. And you, you've said we a few times. Who's the we in this equation? Yeah, so my uh, brother-in-law, who's my uh, also my business partner. Okay, uh, so the familial thing we can talk about too. There's so oh, much, yeah. so oh, much yeah. to unpack here. It's fantastic. Um, okay, so we're talking about LED lighting. Uh, you sell to residentials. That's the core business. Do you manufacture yourself or do you have suppliers that you buy from? How does that work? Yeah, it's a fantastic question, then, Nick. So we do consider ourselves a manufacturer. We're not doing much local manufacturing here in Canada. We do get our products overseas. However, the big difference between us and the distributor is that we do all of our entire own design, engineering, and certifications and tooling. So meaning, you know, any product that we do, we're designing it from the scratch, ground up. We're fully engineering the, the way it's made, and then we're taking it overseas thereafter. Proprietary technology, proprietary suppliers, and then getting our own certification. So there's nothing that's off the shelf. Okay, and uh, shipping globally or a very localized business? Uh, it's very much localized to North America. You know, okay. we pretty much hit up everything that's Canada and the US. Uh, at one point we had aspirations to be a global company and then we realized we only wanted that aspiration because we like traveling. Uh, there's actually no reason for us to leave the North American market considering it's multi, multi, multi-billion dollar market. So. Yeah, um, and physical retail versus e-commerce, wholesale versus direct-to-consumer, how does that look? It's a really uh, another question. We're very B2B, so we're very focused on selling directly to other businesses. 
Uh, we have gotten a little bit into B2C. You know, we have some e-commerce partners that we work with like Amazon and a few others, but we've come to realize that our strength is really working through people who are already well-established, companies that are already well-established, uh, such as like a Home Depot and such as a lighting showroom or distributor that's doing well already. Okay, that all makes sense to me. So now the moment we've all been waiting for, let's let's talk about this near-death business experience. So maybe set the scene for us and then, then talk about the, the moments. Absolutely. So there's going to be two of them today, which I'm sure some entrepreneurs have gone through more than one. I do consider them both near death. So the first one comes that when I started my entrepreneurial career, we joined the family business and my father-in-law had started a lighting business that was publicly traded. He actually took a bankrupt company and put it on the TSX stock exchange, which is incredibly strange and no one to this day knows how he took a bankrupt company and put it on the stock market uh, but he found a way to do it and then he started raising funds and he started raising you know millions of dollars to buy companies and he bought two three four five six different companies and he brought that business to 50 million in revenue and so that 50 million that that he brought un uh, into there was purely based on mergers and acquisition I'm talking zero organic growth. Wow. Okay? <laughs> Just to be clear here, you know, so you'd buy companies and it would add on to the revenue and then buy more companies and add on to the revenue. The big problem was that he was creating a monster head office, right? So you think about this, Nick, you're buying these successful, profitable companies that have sales teams and engineering teams and accounting teams, but then you're building this head office. And the set office now has a VP finance. The set office now has a VP marketing. This finance now has a VP sales. Where are all these people coming from? Who's paying for them, right? You're taking profits from these subsidiary divisions to fund your head office. And the thing is, the synergies weren't big enough for it to actually make sense financially. You know, what would have been smarter is to maybe have a brain trust at this head office, small group of really smart people, and then let these companies just run and grow organically on their own. Uh, that wasn't the vision. And that ended up catching up to us very, very badly. So... Uh, the first experience is actually more of a death experience, not really near death. <laughs> so what, what ended up happening, unfortunately, was that, you know, from the 2006 time frame, uh, a company was bought within the, the organization that we really shouldn't have bought. It was a company that didn't have any synergies. Uh, no one really liked this business, but my father-in-law saw some really good opportunities financially, thought it made sense brought the business on board. And then the, for those of the listeners who are old enough to remember, there was a massive recession in 2006 and 2007 that started. And then all of a sudden, all of the weaknesses of our $50 million business were very, very apparent very quickly because we didn't have a solid foundation as a business. We didn't have cash reserves. We did not have the right structure in place. We weren't profitable enough. And so the business came crashing down. It was quite spectacular. Within 18 months, so from middle of 2006 to 2008, uh, the entire business came to a screeching halt. Um, and literally everything fell apart at the seams, all of the weaknesses exposed, and the business went from 50 million down to, I won't say nothing, but literally like from 50 to like under 10 in terms of value and in terms of what was happening within that business. Um, devastating for the family. I remember sitting at a desk and I was sitting with my brother-in-law, my father-in-law, and the three of us, all we were doing, we were calculating, okay, do we have enough funds to buy this material, to make this product, to sell to this client, to get paid? And there's like a triangle of just trying to like get enough material to pay, to get the next order shipped out, to get the next payment, to pay for the next supplier who was upset. 
Uh, we did that for about a year. I mean, one of the, the worst years of my life, the ca- <laughs> to be the, honest the with The cash flow shuffle. <laughs> cash flow shuffle. That's all it was. Cash flow inventory shuffle. And it uh, didn't work ultimately in the end. And so it, it's not a full death experience because that's when we had an opportunity, my brother-in-law and I, to buy back three divisions, 10 cents on a dollar because it was such a mess. No one could have got in there and fixed it. It would have all just gone bankrupt. And so we made a deal to say, let's just buy back some of the inventory and assets. You know, we're not going to be able to buy back, obviously, the entire, um, you know, all the divisions, but we'll buy back three divisions and relaunch under our new business, which is called Dallas Lighting, which has been going strong for 12 years. Wow. What a story. So let's go back to the beginning um, of that story and tell me what the different roles are in this listed company. So uh, am I correct that at this point you're acquiring businesses, you're still listed, and each of those businesses' teams, let's say you acquire a team of 10, they all get ingested into the head office. Now you've got multiple accountants, multiple salespeople, multiple everybody coming in. Uh, what is your role in this business and your father-in-law and your brother-in-law? How does that look? Yeah, absolutely. So my father-in-law was the CEO of the business. My brother-in-law was basically kind of like the head VP, executive VP, and I was the head of sales for the for the organization. And my mother-in-law was also an executive VP. So, you know, there, there was really kind of the three of them at the top. I wasn't really part of that strategic team at that time or part of the part of the founder circle. And I was really coming in a few years, five years later from their from their launch. Um, and, you know, it wasn't so much absorbing. As a matter of fact, most of these companies were being left alone in, in terms uh-huh. of, okay, you're just going to continue to run out of your own place. You're going to stay there. We're not going to digest you or you know, ingest you into this business. The problem actually was the fact of just adding so many resources that were not bringing ROI, right? What return on investment was the VP marketing bringing when you already had a head of marketing in that company? You know, what, where is that, you know, technically you almost would have had to fire one of those two people, right? So if you want to get rid of the head of marketing at the company that you bought, you keep the head office person who's going to run marketing centralized, that would have probably made more sense, but that wasn't the strategy, right? So it, uh, it was flawed. It was a flawed strategy, which taught us everything, right? It's yeah. the only reason we've had any success later is what we learned from that, ex- that experience. And at this time, how old are you? I'm trying to think back now. This was 2004. So everybody's going to know my age at this point. But um, <laughs> so I was, I was 26, okay. uh, 26 going into it, you know, 20, 25, 26. Yeah. And what experience do you have in the world of business, uh, like feet on the ground, actual practical experience? When I'm getting, when I, when I got into that business, mm. So I was working for a company that most people will know uh, globally called Rubbermaid. Uh, most people know Rubbermaid. They make garbage cans. They make Sharpie pens. They make Levelor blinds. Um, they're, they're a pretty big company, $8 billion business. So I had gone into that company as, the, uh, as a sales rep, uh, which was actually a really cool job. They had us you know, servicing all the Home Depots across Canada. And then I became district manager. So then I was in charge of 14 other reps. So, you know, I had always been a salesperson. Sales is my passion. I always loved selling and being able to manage 14 people. And Rubbermaid also, what was really amazing is that they sent us to these incredible leadership development programs, uh, which is where my whole leadership passion came through later. And, you know, why I wrote a book about it was really based on what I learned uh, through those amazing leaders globally in Rubbermaid. So I was coming in with like more corporate, you know, Mm -hmm. not, not zero entrepreneurial 100% 100% corporate mentality. I, I never, you know, what's funny about me, Nick, is I never had that entrepreneurial 
mindset. When I look back and you hear people, entrepreneurs' stories of, oh, you know, I had this paper route or I was like selling these things to kids at school or yeah. I was like buying cards and reselling, you know, I never did any of that stuff. I just studied, played sports and then got into the corporate world. My parents both worked at the same company. My mom worked 30 years at one company, my dad 35, you know, and they were just like, just get a stable job. You know, you'll get, you know, you'll do well. You'll do well. Don't don't go out of the box with this, you know? Yeah. So I never really had this mindset of being an entrepreneur, to be honest with you. Which is interesting uh, and adds to the like, in, like complex layers of the story because your father-in-law did something that a lot of people aspire to and struggle to do, which is build a holding company, acquire assets into that company, list it, and then have profit. Like, it seems like a good plan. So my question on that front is, how did he think of doing this and where did he raise the money to go ahead and go forward? Yeah, that's, you know, such a great story. And he's such a genius financially. My father-in-law, the way he pulled this off, it was really well structured. So he actually came from this company called Thomas and Betts, which was a massive lighting company, also globally. And he was a VP finance there and they were doing this exact model. They were just going out there, raising oh. money, purchasing businesses and making this merger and acquisition model and they were trying to get to a billion dollars. You know, I think they got up to about 250 million and they got acquired at that time. And again, he wasn't part of ownership, but he was a VP finance there. He saw that model and said, I can replicate this. Hmm. This model works. It's viable. There's money in the market. So all we need to do is get this holding company on the TSX and then start selling it, right? Start selling the concept behind it. Buy our first company. Once we buy our first company, all the rest will follow. And it's true. It worked marvelously. He's an incredibly impressive salesperson. Mm. So he was able to go out there, sell, you know, really, really well uh, his vis vision to all the investors. And then when he bought those first two companies, things got serious. And then he bought a really, really nice local company, a company that still today is going strong and has a great reputation. That was like a signature purchase. When he got that kind of like raising seven million, buying that business, things really took off from there where then there was a lot of belief in what he was doing. Okay, and then the unraveling uh, financial crash. This is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the housing crash, like 2007-8, um, the bubble bursts, yeah. and revenue just stops. People stop buying lighting because your addressable market is residential properties. They obviously aren't being sold or occupied or built anymore. So, like, what happens? Do you sell off assets? Do you delist? Do you, what was the next step? So one thing I do want to mention, and, and I think you'll know this, Nick, being an entrepreneur yourself, is that I don't think a recession should ever be a reason a business closes, right? Like, you know, even during the pandemic, this has been another great example of it because some businesses have thrived. Other businesses that have been in really tough industries, the best ones have still survived and have still found ways to keep going, even if you're in like kind of the restaurants or hotels, not, not all of them have closed. Um, so I think that we shouldn't use a recession or a pandemic or things like that uh, to say, well, you know, my business closed because of this reason, you know, um, what what happened when you when we look at, at, at the sequence of events, there is some bad luck. OK, and one of the really bad things that happened was that when he purchased that company in 2006, the last business was a large business, about 13 million dollar business, the largest in the entire group. That business was selling to Home Depot. And what happened was Home Depot was doing a massive change with their SAP system. Okay, now we look at SAP and it's like, oh, SAP is amazing and it's easy to integrate. Well, it's, it's it really, you know, it was more kicking off and starting in those years and people were just starting to integrate with it. And what happened was during an 18 month period, Home Depot bought three times too much inventory from this company. And they were the, they were the biggest client. 
And then six months into the deal, when the company's bought, recession's just starting now. And then Home Depot reaches out to the family and says, oh, by the way, we're turning off the taps. We can't buy anything from you for the next 18 months because we overbought on all the inventory. So that was right at the beginning. That had nothing even to do with the recession, really. It had to do with a huge systems mistake. So it's almost like you buy this company that's, do, that's had two amazing years, but they're fake. It's not really amazing years. You know, well, and it's fake actually... and it's not even their fault. They didn't cheat. your no. they, Like they didn't lie in the no. due diligence. You did everything you needed to do and the system just was wrong. That is brutal. This, this is like the bad bad luck of bad lucks, right? But again, if you're a healthy company and you figure it out, you, you survive this. But then you combine that with a recession. You combine that with a head office that's, you know, ballooning out of control. And, mm. you know, the business fundamentals were not there, Nick. I mean, okay. uh, my father-in-law remains one of my closest, the closest people in my life. He's a mentor to me. We talk about this a lot. You know, he's, he's able to, to look back now and, and took a while, but he's able to look back now and, and you know, be honest about it. The, fun, the business fundamentals were not there. And I don't care what kind of business you have. If there's one message for the audience, you have to get your fundamentals right you have to make sure that your business is on strong footing. If you don't have that, any event can come in and just, you know, wash you away. I have been asked this question a lot and given the same advice for 10 years and people think that I oversimplify the answer, but I, I have no doubt that you will agree. It doesn't matter what you do and it doesn't matter how big you are, cash flow kills businesses. And cash flow is really a simple, simple basic. It's, that's it. It's the fundamentals. That's what made me trigger this thought is if you don't have the fundamentals right and you're not selling a good product to a good customer, then the cash isn't going to come and you can't pay your expenses. And then your business is over. Whether you are a trillion dollar Apple or you are just starting out, you need cash in the bank. So I completely understand how the combination of your biggest customer not reordering for 18 months and a recession coming in goes, holy crap, Revenues are low, but the key thing for me here is revenues are low and your head office expenses are four or five times more than they should be, right? And that's then where this yeah. complexity comes in. Absolutely, yeah. So it was a combination of, of those things happening. And then obviously you were talking about the way that the delisting happened. It, it, it doesn't happen like in the movies, let me tell you. It's, <laughs> it's a, it's a, even though it happened quickly, it's a very strange slow burn, you know, where the banking partners and the accounting partners start realizing things are not going right uh. and then they start trying to get involved but then you're trying to save your business so you're just trying to make sure that you know the numbers and the ratios make sense but you know there's a lot of kind of going into those numbers and trying to see okay how can these you know is this the real are these the real numbers or how are we projecting these how are we showing these we've heard multiple stories of public companies right like are you really getting the true true numbers of of how that business is running. I think uh, in 2022, there's there's a lot more rules around this now. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, 15, 17 years ago, it wasn't the same. Uh, you didn't have those same type of, not as many anyway, as many as, as benchmarks and milestones and expectations. So, you know, I think there was some lying to ourselves, you know, also as a business, mm. kind of just not acknowledging certain things the way they should have been acknowledged and, and facing the cold, hard truths of where the business was financially. And then, yeah, it was a very slow burn where then some partners started calling in their loans, right? They start saying, well, now you haven't paid us back our X loans. And, you know, then shareholders are starting to get really uncomfortable and they're starting to say, hey, what's going on? You know, the numbers are not projecting the way they were projecting before. And you know, there were really high expectations for this. I mean, you could imagine in our own community how many people had bought shares and how many people had committed. You know, there, there wasn't a lot at that time. The, the share was only worth about $1.20, but 
you know, the expectation was this was this company was going to get to a billion dollars and that these shares would be worth a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars one day, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that 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 craze of people wanting to, to get in on the action, and then the whole thing comes crashing down, and you have to answer to all these shareholders and family members and friends and you know suppliers and customers. I mean, it's it's really tests your resolve and and your character as an individual. And I mean, that's an interesting point for us to segue into this family business, because that is an interesting experience to go through with anybody, never mind with the people you sit at a dinner table with every night or on Sundays at family lunch. So what was it like? Uh, what was the stress, the tension, the interpersonal relationships? Um, I mean, this is your your wife's or your partner's family. So what was that like? Yeah. Yeah, it was my wife's uh, family, and she was part of the business too <laughs> at that time. So the whole thing was very, very uh, kind of incestuous. The way that thing was happening, um, it was it was really tough. The one thing I will say is that we are a very tight knit family. Um, there was never any finger pointing. There was never any type of blame being shifted. Uh, there was always support for each other. To be honest with you, uh, really, there wasn't that much infighting. It's funny, you know, my brother in law and I, uh, Joey, was it was a, it was a great entrepreneur. We talk about this a lot. It seems like there's more fights in family businesses when there's too much money, not when there's not enough money. <laughs> it seems like when you're just struggling to survive and you're you're down in the depths of the, the war, you know, and you're, you're there and you're fighting for your survival, uh, everyone kind of rallies and, and works together and does the best that they can to get through this, as opposed to when you see money, families making too much money or someone's making too much money and someone's not making enough money and they feel they're entitled to more that's usually when you see the blowups and the real fights happen. So I'm pretty proud of the way things happen in terms of the family dynamic. We really kept a, a close link. And my father-in-law was absolutely essential in helping us buy back the three divisions. He became incredibly selfless during those months and negotiating with the bank and kind of letting us get in there and, and relaunch the new business without him, really. He did help us a lot after, but he, he wasn't really part of the ownership of this new business. Um, we couldn't we, we couldn't be, right? It, it wouldn't have worked. So um, he was very, very you know important uh, in, in making that happen. So I think, I, to be honest with you, it's the, I would say it's our family dynamic that allowed us to relaunch more so than, than have any struggle with it. That's amazing. Um, the, the thought that comes to mind when you talk about this is um, struggle seems to galvanize people where success seems to polarize people. And whether yeah. it's familial or just co-founders or whatever, when there is success involved, people want their share of the pie. When there is struggle involved, people want to build a pie, make a pie. So um, I like that um, that way of looking at it. And I think it's quite unique. I mean, my family being uh, of Greek and Cypriot descent, we also do the family thing a lot. I've luckily stayed out of it. But for my entire life, I've been like, this is a terrible idea. And for all my sins, I ended up hiring my mom in one of my previous businesses and actually had to fire her. We are still on very good terms and I love her de- dearly. But, but, you know, family businesses are hard. So I'm glad that none of you had to fire anybody. Um, okay, so... <laughs> So things go um, bad. Shareholders are calling in loans. Um, I'm interested in the day-to-day experience of this period because on a high level, it sounds overwhelming and I'm picturing movies where you know there's shareholders knocking on your door, but it's much more insidious than that, right? It's every day somebody comes out of the woodwork and this happens for 18 months. Like, What was an average day like for all of you at that point? It was a total disaster. Like, honestly, there's no other way to say it. Just uh, a I'm disaster. Someone who's, 
it's a disaster. I mean, I'm the most positive. I have a, I have a diagnosed positivity bias. I'm literally like off the charts. It's not a good thing, by the way. That I'm, uh, people might think I'm saying that to, to give myself a pat on the back. It's actually terrible to be on any extreme. Uh, the problem being with a positivity bias is that I, I have rose-colored glasses most of the time, and I'm absolutely oblivious to most blind spots. Uh, so I just kept thinking like, ah, this will be, this will turn around. This will be great. But when every single phone call you're getting, especially when you're client-facing is an upset client, right? And these are people that I've built relationships with for four years now. I feel really close to these individuals and they're calling me like, where's my shipment? Where's my product? Why isn't my order here? You promised me last week. You promised me the week before and they can't serve their end user because we're B2B to C, you know? So we're B2B and, you know, that to me was the hardest part, having to take these, these upset calls, some of which were very unpleasant um, and, and deal with that. And then you think about, you know, suppliers who you've built also strong relationships with who you're not able to pay either, but they have goods that you need. So you're kind of trying to finagle your way and negotiate ways of getting these things. So it was just literally every single day was just negotiating, negotiating, negotiating with a lot of negative outcomes. You know, there wasn't a lot of positive outcomes from that negotiation. So it's not like you're negotiating and, and winning deals or coming out on top. You'd be kind of selling a little bit more of your soul to the devil every single conversation. And then at one point, the whole thing just comes crashing down. And then when you relaunch, don't forget that now it's the same industry. So we relaunched in the same industry. Now we got to go back with our tail between our legs to go see all of these suppliers and all these customers. And now we're trying to make deals to relaunch with them. You know, after we've just like given them two years of absolute horrendous service. So, yeah, it was it was very, very, very energy consuming and, and difficult. Thank you for sharing that. I can I can feel the pain. Um, at that time, were you having these difficult conversations specifically with suppliers? Did you guys have an inkling that you might have to relaunch this business or was it just like save everything we can all hands on deck? Because that then informs how you talk to suppliers. We had zero idea, motivation to relaunch a business. We, we, uh, so this is this story, which is again, you know, I don't know if it's been changed over time in my memory, but this is the way I remember it. We had taken all the money we had left, second mortgages on my father-in-law's home and my brother-in-law's home, my home. We took second liens, any penny I had left, and we were about to put it all back into the existing business, the existing public business to try to save it. And I still remember that we had to sign and it was a very late signing. It was like a 10 o'clock at night signing and literally at 9.45 p.m. And I was very naive, very, very, very stupid, to be honest with you. I didn't really thought it through. My father-in-law said we should put the money back in and then, you know, we'll save this business. Okay, let's do it. Okay, I guess that's the right thing to do. I'm listening to you. I trust him, right? My father-in-law is a financial guy. I'm kind of forgetting the last two years of the business falling apart. And I'm just like, okay, let's put this money back in. I have a pregnant wife, by the way, at this point with our first child. I'm just like, not even like hesitating to put money back in. And 9.45 at night, he calls my brother-in-law and he says, and myself, and he says, guys, we cannot put the money back into this business. I'm looking at this. It's just going to suck the cash. It's going to be a vortex. It's just going to go to pay back some suppliers and then we're still not going to make it. Hold your money. Mm. We'll figure things out. Wow. And so we ended up not putting money back into that business. It ended up crashing in the next couple of days, really falling apart. And honestly, that's the difference of kind of where I live today, of where God knows I'd be living, because that one single decision probably changed the entire course of my life. As a matter of fact, I think if we had made that wrong decision, 
I am quite confident. I know this is wild to say this, Nick, but I'm quite confident I wouldn't ever have been a an entrepreneur. I think I would have become a corporate. I ended up with like a corporate VP or a president something somewhere maybe, but I don't think I ever would have owned a business. Isn't it wild to be able to look back on your history and find a single pivotal decision that somebody else helped you make that defined the next 10 years of your life? It's crazy. It really is crazy. I mean, look, from, from the outside, uh, it what it says to me is your loyalty is just off the charts. I mean, your father-in-law must be one hell of a guy because you were going to war, regardless of what bullets were flying at you. You were going in. And the fact that he clearly had the wherewithal to stop and go, is this the thing or is this an emotive decision? Is this financial? And I imagine that, thank goodness, he's a finance guy because the numbers told him the story at the end. Absolutely. No, for sure. And and yes, I, I, I do consider myself to have probably the best in-laws uh, that a guy could ask for. I've been with my wife a very long time, so I've known him since the 19, late 1990s. You know, I, I've been I've been his, he's been in my world, I've been in his. So, you know, and he accepted me. I still remember from the day I met him, I was like, okay, you are now my second. You know, he, he has one son, one daughter. You're my third son now, like literally like a week wow. into this relationship. I'm like 17 years old. We met my wife very young and he's just like embracing me with open arms and like, you know, really an amazing person. So, Man. yes, I had a lot of trust and faith in him. That's absolutely for sure. Um, I think at the same time, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are naive in their early days. I, I really look back and I hear a lot of stories of the hustle and things that people did. And it's like wow that was nuts like the fact that you did that and that you thought that would work or normally like you know 99 of the time that would fail i think you know that's something we don't talk a lot about mm. i think we talk a lot about risk taking mm. and how you have to be brave as an entrepreneur but i don't think we talk enough about like the naive decisions <laughs> that worked out in some cases uh, not all but in some cases so i don't like like that they take much credit for it i like to think that you know what so some way, somehow that my father-in-law stopped us from making a bad decision. Mm. And then, yes, once we took the new decision, then I think my brother-in-law and I, Joey and I put a lot of heart, soul, blood, sweat, tears into the new business to, to make it work. Yeah, there's something interesting this year. Uh, one of the mantras that I'm trying to stick with is to follow the path of least expectation. And it's interesting. It's something that I'm trying to, I've been trying to figure out where it comes from. And I think you've nailed it is that entrepreneurial naivety and coupled with the blind optimism and positivity that entrepreneurs have in spite of being cynical, most of us means that we do things that other people think will fail. We do the unexpected things that other people are like, no, nah, that's never going to work. And you're naively, you're like, of course, man, Mark Zuckerberg, of course, a billion people want to post their Twitter. Where are you now? Of course, people want to do that. It's naive and it's dumb, but it works because it's naive and it's yeah. dumb. So there is it's that path. The path of least expectation is a version of this entrepreneurial naivety that I think you've hit on. Um, okay, so this all collapses. You don't put the mortgage into this business. Uh, I imagine that shareholders kind of go ridiculously apeshit and... Like, how, I want to know the specifics of the closing down and then the starting up. And it doesn't have to be a long version. I'm just interested in that because not a lot of people get to delist or close a listed company and then go and start something new. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as much as I was whining and crying a few minutes ago on the podcast about having to deal with upset clients and customers, you can imagine what my father-in-law and my brother-in-law and my mother-in-law had to deal with, with at the highest level 
of shareholders and people who have put in tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars mm. into this stock, into this company, expecting it to really have massive success. Um, so for them, it was just unbelievable the type of conversations they had to have. I know it scarred them a little bit for, for a while, especially from a relationship standpoint. Mm. You know, there's a lot of relationships that were broken during that time and that have never been mended just based on, you know, uh, people not being either accepting or, you know, obviously not being happy with, with losing their, their money. So, you know, that part was just super, super, super stressful and really really uh, disappointing uh for for my family for my in-laws more so than me because like i said for me it was really more of a customer supplier thing and then yeah then it's kind of like one on one one on one by one naturally uh which i think is going to happen in any situation the partners start turning on you right this is what happens it's it's First, you know, the kind of the BDC, the Business Development Bank of Canada, then the, your main banking partner, and then your other main finance partner, and then your accounting firm. And they all just start one by one kind of turning on you because now you, either, you owe them money and they also had a lot of expectations with where this thing was going. And kind of the sharks are all circling the water at that point, right? Mm-hmm. And so like everybody's upset. Um, and then the delisting, you know, it, it's really like, a, like I said, it was a slow burner. It was not an overnight thing. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of the, the share price because it's like more of a penny stock because it's only like at a dollar. 20 it just starts crashing and going and going and going and lowering and lowering until at one point yes the deal listing just happens because it's just so low and then an official bankruptcy is called mm-hmm. and then you know there, there was clearly not going to be any takeover because there was nothing left to take over really so no one else could have just come in and bought the, the the overall business and i don't think anybody wanted to be part of that mess and so yeah it was just like a slow burn down to nothing and bankruptcy is declared and then, you know, everybody just kind of moves on from you. And, and then what happened was a lot of the previous owners of those businesses who had sold to this head office organization, to this public company, they came circled back because they were sharks as well. And they started buying their businesses back. So through two or three of those companies bought, entrepreneurs bought their businesses back 10 cents on a dollar and relaunched those businesses again as well. Hmm. So it's kind of like a, a weird situation because it hurts your ego, right? When you're seeing yeah. this person that, you know, you pay them, you know, $7 million for their business. And then they come back, you know, two years later, three years later, and they buy their business back for $800,000. Uh, and then they rebuild it back to another $7 million. Yeah, that's brutal. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's tough to see. Tough yeah. to see. Yeah. Um, but with all of that said, the, the thing I've been saying for a while since my first book in 2018 is that failure is not an endpoint. It's a through point. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that you are going to tell us that exact thing is that this failure wasn't an end point for you guys. It was a point of inflection where you decided to lean in, go forward and learn from what you've just experienced and build something new. So now the sharks have circled. They've taken their chunk. You are all left as a familial unit thinking we've got three mortgages on our homes to invest in something. What do we do? And what did you do? Yeah, so then my you know my brother-in-law and I made a decision to buy back the assets of three businesses and relaunch. Now, the thing that people don't tell you about when you do these these type of things is now that your your mud is in your name is in the mud. So your your name isn't worth anything, right? So banking partners, the entire community is like screw these two young guys. We ain't going to support them because like they just came out of a bankruptcy, so they're terrible entrepreneurs. They have no idea what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. There's not one human being that has any faith in us literally one person showed faith in us one person and we don't have understand why and that person was the home depot buyer who we were dealing with uh, a wonderful wonderful woman who had supported us 
And we still don't know to this day how she pulled this off, but she convinced her VP who hated us because we had screwed them over for two years to give us a second chance wow. and to relaunch with them as our first customer. So June 22nd, 2009, we launched our first order back with Home Depot and with uh, them giving us a second chance. And then we had to get into something called factoring. Have you ever heard of this, Nick? Yeah. Factoring? <laughs> this is not a good thing. So factoring is when you cannot get a bank to support you, right? You have to get some money. Our, our mortgages weren't enough. I mean, that was just enough to get the, the ball rolling, but we didn't have enough money to fund all of our inventory and everything that we needed in our growth that we were trying to go after. So we had to use a company. And what they do is that they lend you money at a very high interest rate. So anywhere between like 9 and 12% as opposed to two or 3% from the bank, right? So nine or 12%, then they own your receivables and they own your inventory, okay, during that time. And basically what happens is as you sell stuff, they lend you a bit more money at high interest, you buy a bit more stuff, you sell a bit more stuff, and you're back into that initial vicious circle I told you about earlier, but now you're doing it where you are growing, but you're just paying a lot of interest. And it's really, there's there's almost like it's almost like a loan sharking thing right mm. but it was done in a very clean legal way with a very good company that's reputable that we have in montreal okay so this company they were actually a really great partner these were the terms you have to just accept the terms if you're paying you know 10 12 percent interest and they own what you what you have but the fun thing about this company is that they almost use it as a launch pad to say okay the businesses that are strong enough to survive this you will eventually get a bank if you do it properly. Oh. So they were a launch pad for us to get a bank, but man, was it tough for those first couple of years um, to really get any finances going because you can't really do much because you're paying so much interest on, on all of your How loans. did you find so, this business? I mean, how, how did you guys even come up with the idea to go to like a second kind of strange loan shark that uses your inventory as collateral to the loan at a high interest rate and then go, screw it, this is going to work. Let's plow all of our money into it. Like, can you, it, uh, you feel like it's batshit crazy looking back on it? It is. I, I look at most of what we did. I was like, <laughs> what, what were we doing? Like, what the hell were we doing? I could have gone and made like 150K and like uh, working for Rubbermaid, you know? Um, but um, basically, it's, it's a, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice because you go to the bank and then you go to the next bank and you go to the next bank and you go to the next bank and every bank says no. And then you go to like the BDC and they're like, are you crazy? You guys just screwed us over for bankruptcy. So we're not helping you. So we went to every single partner, that normal partner, and every single one said no to us. And then someone in that, at that point, I can't even remember who, when, how, or, or what, someone told us, you guys have to go through factoring. Like there's, you, you don't have a choice here. You're going to have to go factoring because you can't get a bank and there's no way you can fund your own inventory and receivables. Hmm. And so they introduced us to this company and this company actually was a young guy. Our account manager was a super nice guy, very professional. And they were, they were a real setup. They had a real, like, it was a real company setup. It wasn't anything, you know, you weren't in the back alleys or in an underground basement somewhere. It's not with, the mob. You know, with blindfolds, yeah, with blindfolds going in. Um, and they just, they had a system. And they said, listen, yeah, it's going to cost you a lot. But the way your business is set up, if you just, if you keep bringing in sales, you'll make enough money. To, to pay us our interest and you'll make excess money over that. And once the bank sees a couple of financial statements, like a two years of financial statements, you need to get two years. One year won't do it. Once you have two full years of financial statements, you'll go see a bank and they'll look at your numbers and they'll give you a line of credit. I mean, and it was right. Aside from the insane interest rates, 
you've just kind of nailed down the fundamentals of every business. Have a good product, make sales, and do it for two years, and you're very likely have a real business. Exactly. They're, they needed proof of concept. They needed proof that mm. we could even run a business the right way. Mm. This company had zero risk because the day that we went bankrupt a second time, they would just own our receivables, sell the receivables, collect on our uh, collect our receivables, sell the inventory, and move on. Mm. And they would have not lost a penny because they made a lot of high interest money in there as well. And we had like guarantees coming through the the ears and nose and head and neck and all kinds of things. So you know we were <laughs> we were really tied into this thing. But he, they were right. You know, once we had that a good product at a good margin, we're delivering, executing, shipping on time, making sure we're meeting deadlines, then yes, at that point, uh, a bank, you know, to, you know, I'll, I'll mention it, TD Bank, for anybody who knows it, they're, they're my bank for everything because they're just such a great supporter of ours. They, they, when they saw the numbers, they said, yeah, you guys have two years now, it makes sense, and uh, here's a line of credit. And then we left Brome with like, literally like handshake, like pat on the back, like thank you, thank you. You guys did what you needed for us. We did what we needed for you. Great relationship and we walked away. What so. a wild ride. What a wild ride. Um, it's not over yet. I was going to say, That's it's just not over. We're now leaning into the second near business death experience. So, so I mean, how do we go from two years in uh, the loan sharks, not loan sharks, the factoring um, has worked out well. You've got two years, a bank behind you, customers, new products, what happens next? So now we're feeling good about ourselves, right, Nick? Now Boom. when you get into a little cocky and stage, I was gonna we're say, in the cocky that's phase That's the problem. The second you start to feel good about yep. yourself. <laughs> we start feeling a little good about ourselves. We start patting ourselves on the back. You know, I, get, I change a barber, go to a nicer barber. You know, everything starts feeling good about my life. I think like I've made it. Life is great. It's amazing, you know? Um, then literally a few months after the factoring, the bank comes on board. We're all happy. We we literally, really, literally are, are starting to feel really good about ourselves. I'll be like, wow, we are two young entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs. We know what we're doing. The non-compete ends for the companies that were in the previous businesses. And we bought back companies, right, that were owned by previous very intelligent business owners. And so I, I remember this day perfectly. My daughter was uh, four years old. I'm at a shopping center with her at the end of the day. I had to go pick her up from school and I, she wanted a muffin. So I was, I'm gonna go, bring, I'm gonna go buy you a muffin. So I'm walking with my, my beautiful four-year-old daughter and my partner calls me. And he says, you have your phone? I'm like, yeah, you know, phones were just, you know, we could start looking at links and things like that on our phone at that point where I was like 2013, you know, we we're starting to get a little more mobile. He says, go on this website. And I go on the website and there on this website, are, are the exact same 200 products from our product line on this website, all priced at a dollar less than what we charge for our products. And it's, they're the same. It's like the same pictures, like the same catalog. So I'm like, oh, it's, it's like someone just copied our catalog and they just put it on online. Like, this is just weird. He's like, no. He's like, it's the previous. And he tells me that I, I will not mention names. <laughs> He says it's, it's, it's X, Y, and Z. These three guys have relaunched uh, their business and they're coming after us head on directly using, by the way, Nick, the same suppliers. So the exact same suppliers. So the suppliers at this point have been dealing with them for about six months now without telling us, right? So they haven't told us a thing and they're going to the market with the same clients. So 
at that moment when I hang up with my brother-in-law, it's a key in the door moment. So for me, you know, him and I, I think if we, we literally was like, these guys are smarter, more experienced. They're, they're older. They know what they're doing. It's not bad. Let's just, maybe we just, maybe we just close shop. Maybe we just key in the door, liquidate what we have. And like, how are we going to survive this? Like, this is, these guys are five times better than us. And I know it's this cheesy thing to say, Nick, but it was the absolute best thing that ever happened to us by far. Best thing that ever happened to us in our history of our business in the last, in the last 12 years. Unpack that for me. So when you get copied that way by someone else, what the first thing that comes to mind is, wait a second, if someone can just copy our products with the same suppliers and come into the same market as us, what the hell is different and unique about us as a business? Do we even have a business? Like, what is our business? Because if tomorrow morning you can go do that, right, Nick? If you could just go copy some products, launch them in a market and be successful, I mean, if it's that easy, then why, why isn't everybody doing it? right it should just be piece of pie but it's not because running a business is hard and running a successful business is, is 10 10 times harder than just running a regular business so it made us realize you know what screw this and screw them like you want to take us on like this is your game this is what you're going to do well let's go it's on baby and so what we actually did as a strategy is that we actually, we did two big things. First, we decided to revamp our entire business. We said, you know what? We're, 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 if our business can be that easy to copy, we need to change. So that was the first time we went all in with LED technology. So LED technology didn't really exist in 2013. It existed for lights when you get to it in your car and you get to a light and a stop and things like that. But, and there were some functions for emergency lighting and things, but it wasn't mainstream. You know, you couldn't go to a store and buy like an LED light yet. So we had already seen the technology and said, we're going to go all in with LED lighting. And, and that was a big risk, huge risk to do that because it was expensive and no one really knew about the technology yet. And the second big decision we made was that we hired, we read the Rockefeller Habits from Vern Harnish and we hired a business coach and we hired a business coach that had no clients. Okay. And the only reason we hired her was because she could speak French. And our company was very French. She was the only French business coach that knew how to do the Rockefeller habits. And she was cheap because she had no clients. So it didn't cost a lot. So the combination of being cheap and speaking French, we're like, all right, sign her up. We're going to do this thing. And it was one of the best decisions we ever made. And she's actually one of the best business coaches in the world today. Um, and so we, we hired her and yeah, we, we went all in. Instead of, you know, putting our moping around and, and being upset and saying, what are we going to do? We, we went into full attack mode and it completely transformed our business. Completely, completely, completely. It's so interesting you mentioned that book. I, I reference that book once a month, once every two months. Um, if you haven't read it, The Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish is a cracker of a book. Um, it explains basic understanding of how you should structure reporting and lines and strategy and all sorts of interesting pieces of information that good old John D. Rockefeller implemented in his rise to, to masses of money. Um, and I'm a fan. I, the basic premises are, are just so unique and interesting. So... How long ago was it that you hired the business coach? That was in 2013. Okay. So that was the when we, we launched with her. And then how long after that did things start to like change? 
So it was really interesting because what happens when you start implementing the Rockefeller Harris, which is now called scaling up. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, as you know, I'm actually a scaling up coach now. That's how passionate I am about it. Um, you get some really big wins at first, usually like pretty quickly. And then it's just discipline, routine, focus, alignment, and things just start happening if you follow the process. Mm. Just trust the process. I know this is a cheesy line that we hear in sports. We hear it everywhere. If you trust the process, you just do what you're supposed to do and follow the methodology, you will have instant results. So I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. When we started this, we said, okay, let's have our first kickoff meeting. So she, she said, we're going to have this two-day meeting and we're going to do some strategic planning. We had done a little bit, my partner and I, because we come from EO, both of us. So we had already heard about, you know, building some values and, you know, doing, uh, doing a few things. But she was really kicking us off in our strategic planning. As many entrepreneurs, the two of us went in there with very fixed and stubborn ideas. We went into the meeting thinking we need to hire some, you know, salespeople, a VP sales, and we need to become the administrators of the business and let like salespeople run our entire sales division because, you know, that's kind of where we are in our career path right now. As soon as we left those two meetings, we realized the exact opposite. What came to the forefront was that, wait a second, Joey and Sean, you're the two absolute best salespeople in this business. You need to be selling and bringing in revenue and you need to hire people to run the business, not be stuck in the day to day. And so it forced us to, it not forced us, but we wanted to, made us hire a controller, a head of product development, and then we put in place a director of operations. These people then run the business. We were still very involved, but we were spending a lot of time on the road. So, you know, that's the type of thing that strategic planning will do for you. You're going to go in there and say, oh, we're going to do things a certain way. But when you start talking out as a team, you start really analyzing your chart, understanding your strengths and weaknesses. And that was, again, another like small but highly important decision that we made because we didn't bring in our VP sales until 2020. Mm. You know, just to get that here in perspective mm. for seven years my partner and I grew the business to, to well into the eight figures just based on him and I out there working the market, working our contacts, working our, our industry. And that was like, again, another amazing decision. I think we would have failed pretty miserably had we brought in some type of sales manager. But it, it is such a key observation from an entrepreneurial perspective. Uh, the imposter syndrome is quite insidious and it sticks with you as an entrepreneur, especially much like you. I'm not a formally trained entrepreneur at all. I just built stuff. Um, and you constantly think there's got to be someone better at this. It's got to be like, there's got to be an entrepreneur who's better than me at this. There's got to be an operator better than me at this, a salesperson better than me at this. But the truth is, if there was, they would be doing it. So the yeah. the key point that I, I, I'm kind of figuring out myself is, do you want to focus on your strengths and double down there? Or do you want to focus on your weaknesses and make them better? And I think that it's a combination and a constant seesaw. But at the time, yourself and your brother-in-law were like, fuck it, the best way to do this is to double down on what we know how to do and let somebody else do everything else. And it's a trap that most entrepreneurs fall into is that, oh, I'm the founder, CEO, I must do everything. No, no, you can't scale yourself. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and it's funny. It's a really great point you're bringing, Nick. It's something that we debate a lot in the state of scaling up community. Actually, one of the questions on our first scaling up assessment that we sent every new client is, is the entrepreneur head of sales? Because it's literally the only relationship you usually see is that the entrepreneur is the head of sales hmm. and scaling up in its structure says that's not a good thing. And I'm kind of, you know, have my own viewpoints on it. I say, hmm. well, it depends. You know, it's maybe not a good thing, but maybe it's an amazing thing. Hmm. Maybe it's a really great thing because if you're going to be really amazing at sales and customer facing, 
the problem only comes in if you're trying to do, like you said, too many things. If you're trying to be head of finance and head of engineering, head of product at the same time, well, you're going to fail. But if you have some other really smart people around you and you are the customer facing representative of the business, I don't see a problem with it. I, I really don't. I think it's it's wildly important for a, a strong CEO who's got a sales uh, background to be the face of the business. Why not? Yeah, I, I suppose it's a matter of um, self-awareness. If you are self-aware enough to know, hold on, I'm not the best salesperson here. I can barely speak to myself in the mirror, never mind a customer, then maybe you hand off sales. But if you are the sales face, you've been doing it for two, three, four years, then removing yourself might not be the best option. But it is about dropping that ego and being aware that maybe you're not the best or maybe you are the best. Um, okay, so absolutely. what I want uh, to discuss, which we've kind of not gotten into amazingly an hour into this, um, is the seesaws of emotion and mental health here. Because we've condensed 15 years of emotional train wreck uh, entrepreneurialism and i say that from a point of experience that it is a train wreck um you now have got your emotional support is your partner your wife your family who are in business with you so how do you kind of manage how does sean manage mental health like what were the lowest lows and how have you coped with them so I coped with this in a very specific way that is completely foreign to me, which I know might sound very bizarre, but I started writing huh. and um, I'm not a writer. I'm not, I've never by any ways, I, I studied a little bit of script writing. I studied documentary filmmaking in university and uh, I, I did a little bit of script writing, but I'm not by nature, by passion, a writer, but I needed an avenue to get out, you know, kind of my anger, my frustrations and my visions of, of what I was doing from a day-to-day -day basis. And so, you know, what would happen was my wife, you know, falls asleep a little bit earlier than me. So she usually falls asleep around 9.30 at night. And every night I'd go up into my office and for about 30 minutes, I would just write. And then it started becoming a story. So I was really passionate about Robin Sharma and about Patrick Lencioni and, you know, so the, the books they've written, you know, the ideal team player and the five dysfunctions of a team and, um, you know, the monk who sold his Ferrari. So I just started writing a story and it was all about, you know, a guy who was really unhappy and he treats his family like crap and he treats he doesn't do that well at work and he's kind of past his prime and he's out of shape now and you know his, his life is going nowhere as many many people kind of feel you know in general and then they get to certain points in their lives and then he just meets somebody who kind of brings him back on the, the this path of of righteousness and this path of self-awareness and self-motivation um and it took me eight years you know and you you for those who are going to see this on video but there's there's like a little book in my background screen here that's that's the book it's called the happy leader um, and it really came from my own personal experience and also my experience of being surrounded with entrepreneurs like yourself in, in EO, who every time I meet them, you know, we do the, the best examples and we do our one word open, right? We meet, we meet once a month and every day, every time we meet, we do a one word open. And the words that come out from this one word open are stressed, burnt out, unhappy, tired, overwhelmed. It's always the same type of words. And I started thinking, wow. Everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, but every entrepreneur I know just wants to sell their business and sail off into the sunset. So I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> there is like a real disconnect, you know? And then the biggest message that I understood from all of it is that every time I talk to people, I always get the same answer. I will be happy when. I will be happy when I sell. I will be happy when I bring in that new VP. I will be happy when I land that new client. But then those things come and go and you're actually not happier. So I've been on a lifelong quest for happiness. And you, I don't know if you're aware of this, Nick, but my, my Sean's my second name. My real name, Sukraj, is an Indian name. And it actually means the happy leader. 
that's actually what it means. And that's the name of the book that I decided to write. My grandmother named me that way. And I've just been obsessed with happiness and, and helping entrepreneurs kind of achieve that uh, ever since. One of my uh, favorite quotes is, wherever you go, there you are. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have a new VP. It doesn't matter if you sell your business. If you are fundamentally, inherently, and deeply sad, you will not be happy when you reach those milestones. Most of the unhappy people I know are the wealthiest. Like, it's, I agree it's just the way it is. And it's, um, it's an internal struggle, not an external one. Um, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you on that. So yeah, it took me a while to get through it, but uh, that was the basis of the book. What, what a fantastic way and one that resonates with me deeply to deal with your mental health. I've been a writer since I can remember seven, eight years old. It's all I've ever done. I studied writing and journalism. It's what I practiced. Um, being an entrepreneur was actually secondary to me being a writer when I was younger. Um, so I, it resonates with me and I get it. Like that verbalizing out of your brain onto a piece of paper, your fears, your concerns, your worries, your stresses, there's something magical to writing them down, makes them tangible and then less important um, in your head. It's the anticipation in your brain that makes the fears worse than the actuality of those things coming to life. So writing them down makes so much sense to me. Um, you're the first person yeah, to ever no, say it that really, to Yeah, it, it made a world of difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, what I, and the other concepts that I bring out in, in the book have a lot to do with what I've learned along the way from many mentors and many incredible people, uh, how to visualize, you know, true visualization, how to meditate. Uh, you know, get into breathing, how to surpass expectations. You know, I push people, I, I encourage people to push themselves physically beyond their limits because a lot of people don't push themselves far enough and, and don't, and, and that confidence that comes with that, I think makes a, a huge difference. So that would have been my second avenue where I started running marathons. I started doing triathlons, you know, just to make sure that I was just, kind of I just mentioned that in passing, as... just mention that in passing. It's the marathons and the triathlons is an extra to the writing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but honestly, like anybody in the world could do a marathon or a triathlon. It really doesn't take a special skill. If you just go and start running and you just run like a little bit more every week, you'll run a marathon. That's it. And I'm certainly not breaking any records, so I don't put any much credit into that. And I used it more as an avenue to get stress, right? Stress mm -hmm. out uh, of my system. And it's funny now that I'm coaching, uh, you know, uh, 25 or so companies uh, uh, around the world, I bring in these techniques into our strategic planning. And I'm telling you, people find this thing so weird, hmm. Nick, you know? So I'll literally do like a Wim Hof, like, you know, breathing technique. For those of your audience, if you don't know him, check him out, Wim Hof. Uh, I'll literally do that like at like three in the afternoon and like go outside in the Canada winter. And it's like minus 10 and they're like, what are we doing? And I'm like, we're gonna go and do like four minutes of breathing and like holding breath holding. The, the and they're like, push breathing. have you lost your mind? Like it's minus, <laughs> and I'm like, trust me, we'll go do it. And then you're going to come back and we're going to have a lot of energy because if not, you're going to fall asleep for the last hour and a half, which is always what happens in these meetings. So, you know, it's and I teach people how to visualize. I teach them how to, to do true meditation and things like that. So stretching during, you know, the, the actual sessions. So I'm trying to bring in this core element of kind of physical and mental self-awareness that you mentioned earlier into business, because if you can integrate that into your business life and your business world and with your teams, like everybody will be that much better off. Yeah. Um, I mean, this theme is incredibly one that comes up uh, often on this podcast. In the very first episode, one of the guests was Stilly Charanambus. Similar name, not exactly the same. Uh, if you haven't listened to that one, go listen to that. But Stilly talks um, very vulnerably about the rise of his business uh, and the link to his personal development, that the two things mimic each other almost exactly, that the more he got to grips with the trauma he'd experienced in his life, the more he dealt with that, the better his business was doing. And we often try and separate work and life. 
And I've always found it to be such a laughable idea, being an entrepreneur since I was 16, that, oh, you've got work and then you've got life. I'm like, no, 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 all I do is work. My life is my work. Those things are intimately tied because in my brain, they exist simultaneously. So the separation of those things has never made sense to me. It's more like finding the way to get them to work together makes more sense. So everything you've said just resonates so deeply with me. Um, now, before we give you the floor to tell people where they can find you and follow you and learn from you and hire you and buy from you, um, I want to ask you what you've learned that you take with you everywhere you go from these two near-death experiences. So number one, which I didn't mention, but I just really want to emphasize it again. You know, so many people that I see launch businesses, right? We see a lot of so many businesses, a lot, a lot of which fail. And you base your, your launching of your business on a great idea or a great service that you have or, you know, an order. You get an order for something and you're like, wait a sec, this is a business. And then you just start trying to run with it. The problem is that if you haven't built the foundation of your business, if you haven't figured out why you exist, where you're headed, your core values, the type of people you want within this business, it's gonna, it's probably either gonna fail or you're gonna need to get to it eventually and then you're gonna regret not having done it early. So for me, it's make sure that your business fundamentals are sound, build that foundation the right way. Strategic planning, it's never too early to do it. So just make sure that you're, you're planning out your vision like you should do in your own personal life as well. Uh, so to me, I, I would say that's, you know, number one. And then number two is mental health comes first. So make sure that you're taking care of your, not just mental, your your, your holistic health. So your, your mind, body, soul, it comes first. If you don't have that way, right, if you don't feel energized, if you don't feel like motivated, excited every single day when you wake up, you know, it's going to be very hard to be successful, whether in your, your business career and your, your, or as an entrepreneur. So just mind, mind yourself before anything else. Yeah, that last one, I, I think, is so key to everything I've ever built um, that I've actually, I've call, I called it the sacrifice fallacy. It's the idea that you can sacrifice your mental and physical health and still build something amazing as a fallacy. You need to put yourself at the top sure. of your priority list. That fallacy is there because we all, the hustle porn, we all tell each other that we can work 20 hour days, 20 days in a row and the work is still good and it's not. It's a fallacy. So Agreed. don't fall for it. Um, okay, so now in closing, tell people everything you want to share with them. Where can they find you? Where can they buy your book? What do you want to tell them? The floor is yours. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, honestly, anybody who wants to reach out to me, just email me at sean at elevationleaders.com. Go to the website, elevationleaders.com. Uh, the book is at on Amazon, The Happy Leader. It's very easy to find. There's no other books named that way, so you'll see it there. And then also with LinkedIn, you know, you and I are both very active on LinkedIn. Uh, find me on LinkedIn, Sean Johal, I'm the only one there. Uh, we can connect and, uh, and have a chat. So um, I remain 100% available for anybody who wants to discuss anything further. Amazing. Sean, thank you for the vulnerability, for the two incredible stories. And I'm so excited to know that for you and your family business, it's not over. Well, thanks for having me. Nick. This is, the experience has been amazing and I'm wishing you the best of luck. I know this is going to be a very successful podcast. Thank you, Sean.